This is one of those passages that if the writer Luke had asked, I would have said, this is not popular teaching. And if you really want people to follow this fellow Jesus, I'd be tempted to eliminate it or at least tuck it away in an index that is difficult to find. Well, Luke did not have my editorial input, so here it is, and the question is, what in heaven's name are we to do with it? I did decide that we could choose to ignore it, saying that it's an exaggeration or hyperbole and not to be taken literally. We could say it's a future ideal for when Jesus returns so we can ignore it for the time being. We could think about trying to put it into practice and then look at our world and say it's virtually impossible. However, we have heard it read and heard the reader say this is the word of God and most of us have responded thanks be to God. So let us consider what it might mean. Let me read a statement I found in a recent Richard Rohr meditation. Over the past few decades, Christianity has become obsessed with what to believe rather than how Christians should live and act. In Jesus, we do not see a presentation of doctrine, but we see an invitation to demonstrate God's goodness through our behavior and treatment of others. And I believe that this passage is first and foremost about how to treat others. It is not a list of rules and regulations. It is about the fact that all people, nasty or nice, friend or enemy, need welcome and love, not law and rules. I met someone recently who was gay, and friends of theirs invited them to church. And in the context of that service, they were waiting for the communion part of the service. And in this particular church, they went to the front and stood in a circle, waiting for the minister to deliver communion. And they told me that as they stood there waiting for communion, that quite unwillingly they started to weep. And this person said, I wept because I was surprised that they would allow me to participate. And this person said to me, I'm going to church regularly now. The power of acceptance. Now, I'm sure that all of us are aware that turning the other cheek, blessing the abuser, giving when much has been taken from us, is easier to discuss than to do. And it also is a heck of a lot easier to think about in the peaceful country of Canada and from the comfortable pews of FPC. It takes on a whole different meaning to think about this if you're in the midst of a war that is impacting you or your people. But I wanted to look at that and see what I could learn from what people observe about this passage in the midst of really difficult situations. So I went back to a favorite book, of which I only understand half, but the half I understand is really good, by Miroslav Voth. And he presented an early paper on the fact that he believes that we are to love our enemies, 
At a time when his own country, Yugoslavia, was torn by war. And listen to what he says in the introduction. After I finished my lecture, Professor Jurgen Moltmann stood up and asked one of his typical questions, both concrete and penetrating. But can you embrace the Chetnik? It was the winter of 1993. For months now, the notorious Serbian fighters called Chetnik had been sowing desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, destroying cities. I had just argued that we ought to embrace our enemies as God has embraced us in Christ. Can I embrace the Chetnik? The ultimate other, so to speak, the evil other. What would justify the embrace? Where would I draw the strength for it? What would it do to my identity as a human being and as a Croat? It took me a while to answer, although I knew immediately what I wanted to say. No, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to. In a sense, this book is the product of the struggle between the truth of my argument and the force of Moltmann's objection. It was difficult to write. My thought was pulled in two directions, by the blood of the innocent crying out to God and by the blood of God's Lamb offered for the guilty. Now, Voth is, if nothing else, a total realist. He says that the biblical vision of peace is hard, and moving the stone of peace up the terribly steep slope of violence, doing small acts of neighborly help, when you are not sure that the neighbor you help will not be back next week to kill you, is desperately hard. However, he says it is not as hard as doing what we are called to do if we follow the crucified one, carry our cross. He believes that doing these small acts of neighborly kindness break the cycle of violence, break that cycle of automatically going after revenge. And yes, he says, this may lead to one's own death, but it may lead to what he calls the seed from which the fragile fruit of Pentecost Costal peace might grow. The fragile fruit of Pentecostal peace might grow. He goes on to ask, and I was glad he did, is this even possible in our violent world? And most of the people I read were very unsure about whether this was possible given the world we live in. Voth acknowledged that perhaps all we can hope for is to answer the question, What forms of violence can we tolerate to stop worse violence? He concludes, however, that the way of Jesus is peace and forgiving the enemy. And I realized, of course, that if we are honest, we know that there is a huge gap in our own lives between what we might say and what we do. And church history is rich with stories of our failure to offer peace and love. One of the people that I found helpful was a British theologian, author, and minister, N.T. Wright. And he had a helpful way of looking at this passage, 
a positive way of describing it. Not easier, but positive. And this is what he says that this passage is about. Jesus' life was about glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. It was like fresh spring, like flowers bursting through solid concrete and catching us by their stunning color. Wright acknowledged, as did all others that I read, that this is not simple. But he said, be people who try to have a new heart attitude to those we do not like, do not trust, to those that we may have suffered under. Try to give even if we see no return. In spite of all the world can throw at us, try. Why? Well, this is what we see in Jesus. He lived this. This is what many of us have experienced from Jesus. If you know yourself, you know that the fact that Jesus loves us is quite undeserved, that that is his glorious, uproarious, ridiculous love and mercy. And we are to be the image of that to our world, generous to a fault, even to the undeserving, astonishingly merciful, even as God is. And we will be blessed in the doing of this, given good measure, pressed down, Shaken together, running over. For what we give, we will receive. Okay, I would have left that last little part out. What we give, we will receive. That causes tension for me, because I am not good at this. However, I believe that this God of ridiculous generosity, that his love wins out, that grace wins in the long run. Several years ago, I spent an absolutely delicious hour plotting revenge on a family member. (laughs) It was amazing. And I'm quite creative about how I plotted revenge. They had been cruel and unethical to me, and I wanted my 25 pounds of flesh. Five years down the road, and I realized that that actually was gone. And I'm not saying that what was done was right. And none of the people I read would name violence as being right. It's wrong. And what happened to me was wrong. However, over those years of thinking and processing and praying, I realized that I actually was the one who was suffering because I was trapped by my anger and my deep desire for revenge. The results of letting go is freedom. I don't have to like that person, but I needed to let go of my need for revenge. Now, my experience is not a big grand thing in the scheme of the huge issues of the world, and most of us thankfully will not be faced by huge issues, and yet I suspect that there are more than a few of us here who have experienced pain, unfairness, cruelty, suffering from someone, so perhaps you can relate. There is a way to freedom, not without cost and at times great cost, but it is here. And Ryan always likes us to make sure we speak about the good news in this. And the good news is we will not be alone in this. Trust God. 
God says to us, I am as close as your right hand. That's pretty close. That's God. We are loved in the midst of either our letting go or our plotting revenge. We are loved in the midst of either of those situations. And the passage from Isaiah is a statement that in the long run, justice wins. God wins. God is the light, and the dark will never put the light out. There will be a time where there is peace, where there will not be injustice, there will not be violence. Isaiah reminds us that God wins, justice wins. It may not be when we want it. It may not even be until Jesus comes again. Some days I pray that'll be pretty quick, actually. But justice wins. And I would say that our world desperately needs peacekeepers, peacemakers, cheek-turners, givers, voices on behalf of the despised, people who do ridiculous love, ridiculous generosity, people of hope. We have hope. Our world needs people of hope. Because when we get afraid, we tend to retrench into rigid thinking. We need people of hope who will go out and say, there is a reason for hope. And I would say to us in closing, go and be those people to our world in need. Amen.